Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Neuroqueering Podcast. I'm your host, Pasha Marlowe, and I am thrilled to bring you today Jesse Purdy. Jesse is an activist, a public speaker, and the CEO and founder of FIC Human Resource Partners. I don't know what FIC stands for, but we're going to find out in a moment. And I'm so glad to see you again, Jesse. Hi. Hi, Pasha. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be speaking with you today. Absolutely. And of course, now that I read my notes as to what we're going to talk about, because we're going to be talking about how to foster inclusive cultures of belonging. And then I look down, I think that's probably what FIC stands for, fostering inclusive cultures. Am I right? It is. Absolutely. When I first started doing um, DEI consulting, uh, fostering inclusive cultures was the tagline that I used under my name. Uh, So when I incorporated the businesses in LLC, I wanted to honor that, and I brought that into the name of the business. Excellent. I, I really, I, I really appreciate that uh, the language around fostering inclusive cultures. I hadn't heard it that way, and I love it. And uh, because I hear DEI all, uh, all the time, and then I feel like sometimes it just gets lost in the landscape of things. Um, do you feel like I know? I know as a neurodivergent person, I often go through this lens, and I see. I ask these questions almost right away. Uh, But does DEI in general include neurodiversity right now? Is that, is that common now in the conversation? Is it, do you feel like it's part of the Neurodiversity being part of the conversation is starting to gain some traction within the the DEI professional community. Um, The truth is that, you know, when DEI first started, it was really simply about gender and race. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Um, it's only been, you know, through concerted effort that the DEI community and the corporate uh, communities have actually started looking at it and going, oh, these intersectional identities are so much broader and we need to be talking about these these different things. And so it seems like each year a new portion of, of intersectional identities comes to light and becomes a main focus. Um, and so it's it's really starting to broaden out. We're really starting to get into things like neurodiversity because for so long that was just simply overlooked. You know, everybody assumed this is the way we operate. Everybody operates like this because, you know, neurotypical people are the ones who created most of these businesses and they were designed for the neurotypical mindset. Mm-hmm. And what they were what they started discovering is that uh, neurodiverse people um, such as ADHD people bring specific talents to an organization that can actually be of benefit and make them a better employee or a better leader in certain circumstances if there's a uh, ability for them to function as they are rather than in a restrained manner like many of us who were early early in life diagnosed with ADHD were like oh you have to do this structure and you have to like narrow in and do this and you know if you don't do it this way you're you're, you're not going to succeed and so everything became very rigid <laughs> made it even worse. <laughs> right. So if there's a space for them to uh, ask for accommodations uh, and that, that conversation is available, then, then, then it's helpful. Yeah. And do yeah. you feel like, is there a fear that, that it's then watering down issues around race and gender and sexual identity if now DEI is uh, expanding so much? I don't think that it waters it down. I do think that we need to be mindful that as we add focuses that we don't forget the things that we have yet to finish. Yes. Diversity work around race and gender are not finished in the workplace. And 
we can't wait for them to be finished to worry about every other aspect of our identities to be honored, accepted, and permitted within corporate cultures or even small businesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in the corporations I'm I'm talking to recently, the the larger ones, it feels like there's certainly an expanded uh, conversation. But sometimes I feel, and maybe it's more in the marketing, the visual marketing, that sometimes I get disappointed by the I'm not, it's not clip art. I'm not using the right terminology, but when you see a photograph and it's like clearly like one person of, of every ethnicity and it just feels really contrived, it almost turns me off. Do, do you, do you know what I mean? Do you have that sense? I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. You know, it's, you have to be careful that when you're using these images, that you're doing them in an authentic way that feels yeah. real and actually represents the reality of your business or your product. Um, I, I worked with a company that that had a lot of diverse people on their website, and yet they were not a diverse organization, um, and they did not serve a diverse population. Yes. Um, and so that was one of the things that we worked on. Uh, you know, I had another client who was very concerned that they wanted to be more diverse, but none of their content was diverse yet. Mm-hmm. And so we had a we had a long discussion about how to to start bringing diverse imagery and language into their into their business so that they could promote the culture that they wanted to achieve and how to do that in an authentic way without, you know, making it seem like they they were somewhere in the process that they were not yet. Yeah, that's so interesting because as a business owner, uh, I just recently led a women's retreat and all white, I'm in Maine, all six white women showed up. But in my advertising, I want to be inclusive. I want to be inclusive to all and I want to show that everyone's welcome. But again, I don't want to misrepresent what is what is actually likely happening and has happened in the past. So I'm I'm all I'm often uh, concerned, confused as to how to how to market because I want to show the future possibilities in my marketing and be authentic and truthful. So what is your, I guess, what is your advice to, to somebody on that? Well, my advice is to, to start with your, your values Mm -hmm. and the guiding principles of your business Mm -hmm. and make sure that they represent the diversity and the inclusion you're seeking to create. Mm -hmm. Then start working to bring in teams and uh, content that fits that mm-hmm. and build from there. You can't just blanket diversity all over your, your, your website, your marketing and not have done the preparatory work. Yes. Um, so you have to start with your values and your, your guiding principles. Um, always having good policy written with a diversity, equity, and inclusion mindset, specifically equity, because if you're achieving equity, then the inclusion comes by default. The diversity comes by default um, with a little effort. <laughs> say, say more about that, because I, I think maybe people aren't familiar with specifically what each of those terms means, the difference between them. So you say start with equity. How, how do you mean? Well, one of the reasons I say start with equity is because you can bring diverse people into an organization. But if your systems and processes aren't equitable, you're not going to be able to retain them. And they're not going to, to, you're not going to foster an inclusive culture where they feel like they belong and want to stay. 
Yes. If you try to create an inclusive culture, but you haven't taken a look at the equity issues, mm -hmm. then you're not likely to achieve the diversity metric that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because there are inequitable, there are inequities that exist in society at large, in education, and that then creates barriers to access in your business. Mm -hmm. And if your own policies are inequitable, such as requiring a you know four-year degree for a position that could easily be done on a high school education, mm. you've created an equity. You've you. <clears throat> pardon me. I do get tongue-tied. The ADHD brain is racing 100 miles an hour. I hear you. And yeah. <laughs> the tongue coordination is going. No, we move at 720. <laughs> uh, put us on the slow speed on the speaker uh, on the little yeah record relatable, player. Relatable. Um, but. If you have that, you've created a, a barrier to access mm -hmm. that is inequitable because you are, are not allowing someone who has the capabilities to come on board simply because they don't have a degree. Interesting. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense to me. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And do you feel, we had talked about this prior to uh, recording, but it still feels important to me to talk about because I hear this is my intention, but this is the impact. But you switched it to intended versus permitted. Can you explain to the audience why you chose <coughs> permitted instead? Because I, that's going to stick with me. And I, I appreciate that. Yes. So when we're talking about actions, we're talking about intent and impact. You can intend one thing, but the impact can be something entirely different because impact is about how it is received. Intent is about how you put it forward. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're talking about culture, we're talking about the intended culture, the culture we set out to create, the one that we put in policy, the one that we state in our values, the one that we market to the public because we want to look good. That's our intention. That's our intended culture. However, what actually exists can be vastly different from that intended culture. And that's because we permit things to exist because it's easy. Um, so we can say that we want to hire a diverse team. But if we don't have structures in place that ensure that a local hiring manager is following the, the equitable guidelines that we set forth to achieve that goal, and we're not following up to make sure that they're meeting those standards, then we're permitting a culture to exist that is different than the one we intend. Mm. Does that? It does. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it does make sense. It actually reminds me in from a trauma-informed therapist and coach perspective, uh, it's no longer recommended to say, I create safe and empathetic space. As much as I intend to and really, really want to, I cannot guarantee that everybody in the room will feel or be safe. And, and it's been a hard shift because I, I really, really want to, you know, and I feel like I have the skills to create that. And, and yet um, I was, I was missing the, the part of the picture about the, the individual impact, but also what the culture permits given um, everybody's own wounds and backgrounds and, and history. So, so yeah, it's, it's been a current challenge of mine. So I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I do workshops. So 
you know, when you're doing diversity, equity, inclusion workshops, and you're talking about bias, you're talking about privilege, and you're talking about microaggressions, you're having very difficult conversations. And the goal is to create a space where people feel comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm. So one of the things that I always set at the beginning of my, my facilitations when I'm doing a workshop is that I'm going to encourage you to lean into your discomfort as an opportunity for learning. Mm-hmm. If the conversation we're having is uncomfortable, there's probably something we need to learn from. And we can't shy away from that discomfort. I I also know that, you know, when we first started doing this kind of work, we all wanted to create these safe spaces uh, and, and create these safe learning areas. And that's not workable, especially when you have a wide range of people with various identities, with various experiences, who are at various stages of achieving the ideal. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's not possible. So you have to create a space where people can be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of intention. And it means you have to do a lot of work. Yes. And and encouraging people to sit with the discomfort and, and learn from it. Where's then <laughs> the the line or the boundary where they're, they are feeling either unsafe or, or, or triggered, or they don't feel like they belong, even though the intention was for them to, that learning can't happen in that environment. And then how does somebody step away? And, and so one of the things that I use in my facilitations is what I call a yellow flag. And there are various ways you can do it. When we're on um, a virtual facilitation and we've got 75 people you know, I often recommend that they turn their screen off, put a hand signal up or whatever, and let us know that there's something. They can type yellow in the uh, in the chat box and, and, you know, the person who's managed my facilitation for me can can alert me when it's when it comes up. And when we get somebody who puts that yellow flag up in whatever manner works for the you know group that we're working with, then what we do is we pause the conversation and we allow that person, if they are willing to share why they are feeling uncomfortable and think we need to pause the conversation and discuss something a little bit deeper. And if they don't feel that they can continue the conversation, we offer them the ability to step out for a minute while we get the conversation back on track and they have the opportunity to regain that sense of emotional um, safety and stability so that they can come back and and re-engage further in the conversation. Um, So when someone shows me that there's a yellow flag, I use that as an opportunity to help learning amongst the group at large. And it often brings up something that we were going to talk about anyway. We're just getting to it a little bit sooner. Yeah. And given all the intersectionalities, I would assume you have a lot of yellow flags that keep popping up. Is that, do you often get them? I I don't often get them. I would say probably 25% of my facilitation, someone has a yellow flag that they bring up. Okay. In most cases, I've done this long enough that I'm able to navigate a conversation and see where a yellow flag is likely to start coming up. Mm. And I can kind of put the brakes on, Mm. restructure the conversation, address the points that need to be addressed in advance of the yellow flags. But that comes with practice. You know, when I first started doing facilitations, there were plenty of yellow flags that I I missed. Mm -hmm. But as I've gotten further along in my career, I've started being able to address these I do a lot of these workshops over and over, so I know where yellow flags are likely to come up. 
And so I've adjusted what we talk about in the order we talk about them so that I can kind of make sure that they're not hitting those points and we're addressing those things before we get to those points. Um, and also, if I see someone has uh, an attitude or a way of interacting uh, that is disruptive, I will sometimes say, I appreciate that you want to learn more. I think this requires a different set of conversations than we're planning to have today. I'd like to speak with you after the session so that we can figure out how to have those conversations so that you can get what you need out of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. One of the most challenging things I find in facilitating groups is uh, redirecting conversation, uh, you know, because I could lead a workshop and know where something like a yellow flag is coming up, but I can't, I can't control what others in the in the group are going to say. And sometimes they'll use words or language that I know is going to be triggering and it's already out. It's already, you know, out of their mouth before I could catch it. And so, uh, yeah, facilitating that is, is challenging. It's challenging. And you it's- don't want to shut them down because they're expressing, uh, their their own you know beliefs and and truths and in a neurodiverse space it certainly is one of the challenges we have is feeling like we do um talk too much say too much take up too much space uh you know verbally process in too much detail and so there's always this balance i have of you know when i do really need to cut somebody off because they're uh the line of the, the, the way the, the direction they're going is not going to be healing or helpful for the group. Yeah. And that's, you know, part of setting the intentions up front is we, we do, we, at least I do when I have my other facilitators do this, we acknowledge that, that this is not a place of blame or shame mm-hmm. and that w- some of us are going to use language that is outdated or harmful because it's the only language we know to express ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, and then it is our responsibility as facilitators that when that language comes up, we go, thank you for sharing that thought. That language is no longer appropriate. Here's the language we should use. Then reframe the question for them using that language and then answer their question. And so what we're really doing is we're reinforcing the the better language choice in multiple ways during that initial conversation. It takes the focus away from them, puts it on the facilitator, and it puts the work of reframing this on us, Mm -hmm. which then allows them to learn and everyone else to acknowledge that, oh, we had a moment, we've addressed it, it's taken care of. I don't have to do this emotional labor and raise the yellow flag. Mm-hmm. Yes. You are doing difficult, brave work. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that it's brave. I, I, I will say that when I was in my 20s and 30s, I would not have been able to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not have the emotional capacity to do the labor, the emotional labor that this requires. Um, But I have developed that ability over the years. And because I now have that ability, I now do this work so that others who don't have that ability don't have to do the work. Mm. Yes. And yet, I'm sure there are moments, I'll make the assumption because I feel them, that it's exhausting to hold that space. And I know I have chronic illness and I believe you and I've shared stories about this, that how do you balance out the, the emotional toll and load of, of holding space for so many people and difficult conversations, just the energetic uh, level of, of support that you're giving is so extreme. How does that feel? It can, it can absolutely be exhausting. And I I do have chronic illness. You know, I have COPD, I have uh, a movement disorder. Um, 
you know, this facilitating takes a toll physically and emotionally. Um, so I'm in the habit of doing a light day beforehand mm-hmm. and then a very, very light day after. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so if I'm doing a facilitation, I tend not to have any meetings scheduled for that day. Okay. And I don't make promises for you know client deliveries that day. Mm. I make sure that if I am emotionally unstable or exhausted afterwards, I've got that grace mm. for myself and that space for me to just fritz out, do what I got to do to get back and not worry about the pressures of the day. Um, so I, I often tell somebody, I often tell people that a, a 40 minute, a 45 minute speaking engagement where I share personal experiential stories of my life actually takes me four hours. <laughs> oh, at least. Yes. Yes. I hear, I feel that mm-hmm. there's the prep time in advance to get myself in a position to actually share those stories. And then there's the, 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 um, deceleration afterwards where I let the emotions in the mind start slowing down to the point where it can function again. Yes. Um, and, and if I don't set that time, I'm not effective. Yes. You, you might not want to be around me because I'm, I'm raw. I might start crying at the mere mention of a care bear that fell off a, off a table. Um, <laughs> I am, I'm aging myself. I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> no, I know care bears. I, I find sometimes I'll, I'll finish a, uh, a group and I'll feel for a few moments lit up and engaged like that was fantastic and then and then you know and then you start to feel the the emotional and physical toll of it and then i'm on the couch or in bed usually for a couple hours after uh you know grounding and regrouping and uh and it's such a juxtaposition and a paradox of like the on the on-screen presence which is true and authentic and it is me and then this is also me that like can't find words for hours after and might be crying about care bears or anything. Yeah. I, I, you, you will, the one thing people learn about me and, and I'm very clear about it when it happens and when I'm talking, I lose words in the middle of facilitation. <laughs> I'll lose it. And I'll just look at people and go, you know what? That worry's right there. It's going to come to me. We're just going to talk our way through this until, you know, um, <laughs> whatever the word is comes out and then I'm like, there it is. And now we can keep moving. <laughs> you know, I make light of these things because yes. I, I am attention deficit. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have a script in front of me mm-hmm. because then I come off very wooden and feel like I am talking like a robot. Um, oh, yeah. And that's not good for anybody. So I don't script myself. And while I have, you know, visual aids on my, my presentation device and I've got slides up and things like that, it doesn't have all the content. So right. My attention deficit brain does have to make those connections. And I try to put enough on the things that I can make those connections very quickly. But if I'm starting, you know, to get overwhelmed um, with, you know, audio sensations or visual sensations and and I'm having all of these inputs and my ADHD brain is just going, okay, we can't filter this. Your antenna is on and your, you know, tuner is just broken. So you're going to get everything all at once. You um, aged yourself again with the antenna. I'm just saying. <laughs> I picture the bunny ears. You slap the side of the of the TV. You try to get through the static. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, flip phones with the pull-out antenna. Um. <laughs> Wrapping ourselves around with the telephone cord sitting in the pantry. 
Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things. And, and it's not just in the facilitation work that we do. You know, my clients know that I, I will agree to a timeline and I will meet the timeline. They also know that there are days where I'm not going to work on that project because my brain isn't going to work on that project because my brain has 17 other projects, some of which are for clients, some of which are for me, some of which are for my roommates that all need to get done. And so my brain will tell me what I'm going to work on that day because that's what it will allow me to work on. Yes. And I still get it all done eventually. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. We, and on deadline. Which I don't miss deadlines. And, and and with a little urgency too. Do you use the spoon theory or do you talk about the spoon theory theory related to disability or or just your energy levels? I, I do talk about spoon theory sometimes. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, you know, when the tick was the, the the animated tick cartoon, the you know, whatever, his call, his call out, his catchphrase was spoon. And so um, I would sometimes use that when I was about to engage in something that was going to require a lot more spoons than I had. I would just yell spoon to, to get myself going. Um, but I often, I often now talk about it more along the lines of, I have this amount of energy and life force to give to this. Yes. And every time I do a task, a little bit of that drains away. Yes. And there are no little secret caches you know, hidden at the end edge of the screen that I can go and jump on and pop open. That, that doesn't happen. Um, yes. So I know that I need the rest. And it took me many years to figure out that when my body tells me it's time to, to disengage and go lay down, that I need to disengage and go lay down because if I don't, I'm not going to have the energy or the spoons to do the next thing that needs to be done. Right, right. For yourself or anyone else. Yes, yes. I relate to so much of what you are saying, as I'm sure all, <laughs> all of our audience, our neurodivergent audience will. Um, so as we're starting to wrap it up, uh, looking ahead into the future of what is possible uh, to uh, create inclusive culture in the workplace and beyond, like, what do you, what do you see? What do you hope for? Um as yeah, what what is what is your dream? Well, what I'm what I'm seeing is that more aspects of our identities are coming uh, to the forefront of conversations. Mm -hmm. um, it's patchwork. It's stilted. We make progress, then we have some setbacks, and then we make more progress. Mm -hmm. it, it is my hope that we don't forget any of our intersectional identities in the DEI space. Mm -hmm. and in the corporate space, and that we always make sure that we're looking into those things moving forward. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't address what you don't know, what you don't measure. And so we need to be looking at these things. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to be including neurodiversity, chronic illness in our demographic questions when we're doing DEI surveys and audits so that we know what the culture experiences are for people that have those identities. Because if we're not asking them those questions, they're not likely to be sharing it with us because we probably don't know that we need to create space for it. And so we haven't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so with, with all my clients, I'm always like, let's look at the broadest set of, of uh, demographic questions that we can ask, Yeah. provide as many options as we can, and then have the discussions about them when we start getting responses. Yeah. It's, I love that. And so many of my clients fear disclosing 
their neurodivergence uh, in an interview or even once they've received the job. When is it okay? When is it safe to do so? Should I ever? And of course, how are we going to ask for accommodations if it's not disclosed? But but yet, still today, so many people are being let go for different reasons because it's illegal to let go of, for, for instance, ADHD. But there's another you know reason somebody will give. So yeah. it is definitely part of the conversation of what is what feels safe to disclose in an interview. And if you're already providing, like you're saying, a uh, a questionnaire of sorts, or as part of the conversation, if somebody were to ask me in an interview about uh, ADHD or autism or my neurodivergence, or even coming from a trauma-informed place, I would instantly, I mean, I've never experienced that. I, I look forward to the day that this happens. I would instantly feel um, like I'm in a space where I where I can start to disclose and ask for accommodations and, and be so much more uh, engaged in my work and, of course, loyal to that company. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think it always has to be done in the interview process. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that many of these questions that we ask need to be asked in a way that is anonymous mm -hmm. so that we start getting a picture of what everyone in the organization is, is experiencing. And when we offer that a way to engage that is anonymous, we can start getting responses that people might not be safe disclosing face to face or on a named, you know, in a named survey where they're where they're known. Right. And so that anonymous what? reporting. That yeah. anonymous reporting allows us to actually see the truth of things. Mm -hmm. And it communicates that this is a safer space, a more welcoming space for you to disclose mm -hmm. that when you do need an accommodation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're speaking more for one, once they've already been hired and they're in your organization. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Ide that makes Ideally, sense. we would like to create that in advance so that they feel safe, you know, so that we Apply. feel like we're able to, to disclose that up front. But mm -hmm. a lot of times it takes effort to create that space where people do feel comfortable expressing those things. Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing it in an anonymous way for the organization as a whole, you'll never get to the point where people coming in the door are going to feel comfortable. True. True. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a beautiful, uh, inclusive world you're creating over there, and I I very much enjoy and I'm inspired by your work and and your humor. I get to enjoy your sense of humor in some of my Facebook groups as well too. So that is always appreciated. Uh, I'm glad you enjoy it. It's a weird sense of humor. I I, I love it <laughs> from one neurodivergent mind to another. It's it's fun. It's fun. Um, so thank you so much, Jesse. I'm so glad we had this chance to talk today. And so am I. And thank you again for having me on so that I could talk with you and 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 share this conversation because honestly. I love talking and I love talking about this. <laughs> just, just give me a microphone and an opportunity to talk. How can people uh, find you? What's the best way? Um, so the, the best way to find me is to go to FICHRpartners.com. Uh, that'll show you everything about my company. It will allow you to you know, see everything that we offer. And there's ways of reaching out to me through that. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, if you're interested in my poetry and activism outside of my career, you can go to jessicajamespurdy.com. Um, the website is up and running again. It had been down for a bit while I was doing some, you know, reconfiguring of that. Uh, okay. But it is up. Not all the features are working yet. <laughs> <laughs> I got distracted by other things and I haven't finished that project. Go figure. Go figure. 
All of what Jesse just said will be in the show notes, of course. So for those of you listening in the car, don't stop your car. Try to text yourself while you're driving. They will be in the show notes. No worries. Um, so thank you for that, Jesse. Uh, also, for those of you uh, listening or watching on YouTube, because we videotape this as well, if you ever want to, as a visual learner, watch the interviews, that's available to you. Um, I've just started Neuro Community, which is a, a year-long group coaching program where we meet every Monday and then another co-working session. And it's been so much fun and it seems to be attracting uh, some really fascinating, creative people who are activists and helpers and healers uh, themselves. I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, I'm just really lit up by it and, and it's available all year long. So you could join at any time. So you could reach out to me at poshamarlo.com for any more info. But what a pleasure it has been talking to you, Jesse. And I look forward to neuroqueering with all of you out there again soon. Cool. Bye. Before you go, I have a favor to ask. Please subscribe to this podcast. That way you won't miss an episode and it'll help me bring it to folks who need it most. Fellow ADHD minds out there. I know you're going to forget. I would too. So let's push that button now and subscribe. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bonus points if you spread the word of the NeuroQueering podcast by sharing it or reviewing it. Thank you. Also, if you want to see more of me, please follow me on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at NeuroQueerCoach. Sign up for coaching at poshamarlo.com or to guest on my show or leave feedback, email at pasha at neuroqueering.com. Thanks all. Happy neuroqueering. Enjoy your day.